The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 23, verses 23 through 35. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor of Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen, And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they may have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks so much, Kyle. Well, um, I don't know if you're a a movie or film person, buff. Um, There have been three movies, three films, that have won and they all tie for the most awards, that is Oscars or Academy Awards, in history. I'm not sure if you know what those three are. One is... uh, the movie Titanic, some of you may remember that one. It was a big blockbuster hit uh, about the Titanic. Uh, and uh, the other one, that was in uh, 97, as I was told before. I totally forgot the date of that. Um, the other one was after that, which is a little more recent, was uh, recent-ish. Uh, Lord of the Rings, remember the Lord of the Rings series that came out in film, Percy Jackson. Uh, uh, he did... Um, he did, the, it was the return of the king, so the third installment of that had 11. The only other one that holds the same amount was in 1959, and it was a movie called Ben-Hur. Now, if you haven't seen this movie, I would strongly encourage you to see it. It was actually based on a novel called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, and it's actually a really fascinating uh, story about a Jewish man. Now, in the movie, it's Charlton Huston playing him. It was first. It was kind of like a massive in '59 when this movie was made. It was like one of the first epic movies, like massive undertakings, all sorts of you know issues and things along the way as they filmed it. Um, but he was a Jewish man in first-century Rome, whose one of his best friends uh, was a Roman tribune. And you see kind of their relationship parallel and then, and then severed as 
he becomes a slave. Charlton Heston, as this Jewish man, becomes a slave and as his friend rises in power. But here's what's interesting. Throughout the film, that's, it's about their relationship. Throughout the film, you see just spotted, whether from a distance or the back or the arm or Jesus just appears. He's just kind of there. It's not a whole, it's not like in your face. It's not just trying to be cheesy. It's just this kind of calm moment. And there's one scene in particular that's always stuck with me. Um, and, and, and I cannot even remember uh, the importance of where it fit into the film. But when uh, they go to Jesus's house and they're talking to, I'm assuming it's Joseph, uh, as he was still alive for that moment. And they're saying, hey, you know, it's a carpentry house. And they're saying, hey, where, where's your son? Isn't he supposed to be here working? And the person replies back and says, he's not here, but he is working. And it just shows Jesus' back, I mean, way far in the distance, out like in almost this field, just walking along quietly. And you can tell he's praying. And that line, he's not here, but he's still working. You know, we just read, we just read a passage, and it's an excerpt from a larger one. I actually cut it down a little bit, but... If you read through this whole chapter particularly, I don't know if you noticed, but you don't really see God mentioned in this. Uh, Jesus isn't mentioned in this, this particular excerpt or passage. It's a very historical movement account. And it's one of those as you read along and Luke in, in, in beautiful details, just giving us historical narrative that he is he has interviewed, he's done his work, he's presenting it. And it could be easy to go, okay, where is that? You know, you don't see God particularly in this right here. It's not like, and God moved so-and-so, and, and the gospel was preached here. It's, it's just this narrative account of what's happening. You don't see him there, but he is working. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these moments in the Bible because they really reflect to our specific day. Uh, it, it, when I worked as a campus minister, uh, we had certain vision statements and things we worked through. And some of you in this room actually worked on the same campus ministry that uh, I did called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. We had things called presuppositions. These are things we presuppose as we walk onto campus, and we would talk about them. And one of the ones that we had that was our presupposition was God is at work. God is at work. <laughs> now, I know that sounds like, well, you're a campus ministry. I hope you think that. But if you think about how important and powerful that, that really is, because how often do we come up against going, is God really at work? Whether we're talking about what's going on overseas, where we're talking about our own lives, where we're seeing it, whether we're looking at a passage like this and we don't really see God mentioned in it, or maybe we've gone throughout our week and we haven't even thought about God, <laughs> God is at work. And that's what we're going to actually look at this morning. We're going to look at that one thing in a few different ways in this passage. How is God at work in this past? He's at work in a conspiracy. <laughs> he's at work in a family. And he's also at work in an empire. And it's kind of crazy to think about that. 
How is he at work? God is at work. Let's look at this. Now, at first, in this passage, and you see it particularly when you jump down from verses 26 to 30, we're reading a letter that was delivered to Felix, a governor, okay? And what has happened is that Paul, previous to this, now we've talked about this a little bit, was in trouble. He had been seized by a group of religious leaders, particularly zealots, that thought he was defiling and violating their law in the temple. And they wanted to get rid of him. And so because it caused such a stir, he was under kind of this guard at the time. And, that, and right before this, and you can see in verse 27 and following, it says, this man seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. This is talking about Paul. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. Why was this religious group accusing him? I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, defiling of the temple, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Now listen to this. In verse 30, and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. There was a plot to intercept Paul and to kill him. This group had an idea. They thought, okay, now previous to these verses, this is all that leads up to this, okay? They thought, okay, he's under house arrest. What we'll do is we'll talk to the leaders and say, hey, bring him out to the open like he's gonna be brought in to be discussed and have his trial and those kind of things. We'll intercept him along the way and take him out. And they kind of tipped him off. Now here's what's important to note. Who was doing this? It was a portion, it wasn't the Pharisees, okay? Typically, we, we, we read the Bible, we think of the bad guys of the Bible. It wasn't the Pharisees. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee at one point. This was a group of zealots that were radical, taking violence in their own hands, willing, wanting to take out people who were going against their law. Some of them were chief priests, some were elders, a part of the Sanhedrin, but not all of the Jews were wanting to do that. It was a sect of them wanting to do that. But here's what was important. It was a conspiracy that was trying to get to Paul. But here's what's amazing. How is God at work in it? <laughs> How is God at work? Okay, Paul is being thrown around left and right in this passage. The question over and over in the book of Acts when Luke writes it is this. How does this small thing called the good news of the gospel of Jesus go to all of the world? Is it through, like, what kind of power does it need? What kind of boost does it need to have? Acts 1.8 begins this way. This will be carried out to all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then what happens? It's through these kind of events, through suffering. In fact, the way that the news, the good news spreads is not through holding or demanding power. It's by the way that it suffers through us. Suffering spreads the gospel. <laughs> as much as they thought they would squell, quell it and squash it, it did. This is why the martyrs, now there's ancient 
church historians say the, mar- the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They're talking about the, that the martyrs, and often, I don't know if you've ever read about some of the people who've actually died for their faith along history and time and space. It's, it's pretty remarkable if you think about it. That people are willing to give their blood and shed their, and give their life for a, a news that has so changed them they believe it'll change the world. And yet this goes forward, and how it goes forward is through suffering. What kind of power do we think the good news has to have to spread, to go forward? And this is where Paul seems so at ease. Paul seems so at ease knowing that he's kind of in the middle, and it comes between, here's what's amazing. It goes between Rome and Jerusalem, religion and civil stuff, law hostility and peace. The gospel is just going. And God continues to carry it forward. And the power that it needs is not what we think it is. It's not just us holding it as we're so strong. It goes in the ways and in the places that we would never expect through our suffering. And it spreads that way. It should give us rest that God is at work even when we feel or experience that is, is, is my own faith waning? Or is Christianity in America falling apart? Is, is, are things in this world crumbling? Guess what? God never ceases to work. In fact, some of the places where he works the most are when we think it will work the least. In the pain and the grief and the suffering and the difficulty and the hardship, one of the things we can never forget is that that God's work, his kingdom, is like if you stand on the shore, you know when you go to the beach and you see the waves come up and back? And you, you know that, right? You're just down there, you're enjoying the day. But, you know, if you go at night or early in the morning, you can see where, how far up the water has come. God's kingdom is never not advancing. It's always advancing. It's always moving forward. And it uses any means it needs to. And it would be easy to even look at this and say, now this conspiracy that they have... <laughs> As hidden as it is, it's revealed. It's not, here's the, here's the irony. <laughs> as much as it's hidden, this group to try and hide and take out Paul, that we go, okay, well, great. God's light, his good news is never hidden. There's always been this discussion about Christianity and the Bible and these kind of things where, okay, is this, is this news from the Bible like, Okay, is this like something you have to get in order to, you know, is it hidden? You know, when Jesus resurrected, he only did, you know, to a few. No, no, no. God has constantly revealed himself. The irony here is that this hidden plot to take out Paul and to squash the good news of the gospel is the opposite of actually what God is doing through it. He actually explodes up and out. And he doesn't do that in a way to make this, you know, like fascinating kind of thing happen. He does it in the very small ways through this 
timeline, in the day-to-day, in the movement, in the history, that God is at work. We may not see him, but he's at work. Uh, It was funny, this summer, uh, I'm sure you heard, uh, there was a whistleblower of some sort about the, in the government of that UFOs are real. Did you hear about all this, right? Have you read all those things? There was a, there's a big thing that aliens are real. Um, and it happened in Ju- July or something like that. And they had all these councils and people reading it and talking about it and that stuff. Actually, what I thought was interesting was the response <laughs> was how little traction it got with people. In fact, uh, <laughs> this is an excerpt of one of the tweets from the NBC News that I even got about that. It said this. It said, are aliens going to fix inflation, cancel student debt and worker exploitation, pay any of these bills, turn the temp down on this planet, and all, <laughs> all around bring happiness to me and my friends' miserable lives? No? Oh, okay, well, I'm not too concerned about the alien. More and more people thinking about the conspiracy theory and the idea of what is hidden. We we want something to address what is happening in us and with us. Not so much, what are we worried about? We want a power, we want someone at work to do the day-to-day, to get in the spaces that don't just fill our imagination, but fill reality. And guess what? God is at work. What Christianity is, is not about a conspiracy that God has hidden another one of, oh, the resurrection theory. No, no, no. God puts his son in flesh, walking in space and time, and raises him from the dead on coordinates on a map so that we know that our day-to-day reality, everything that this person even listed on here, matters because God is at work and is in the space of it. He is here, and he is at work. There's no secret plan. Even the book Revelation is a revelation. (laughs) It's not revelations, it's revelation. It's that he's made himself known to us. There's not a hiding from God. As much as we think that, and as much as we may feel that, God always comes back to say, I'm not hiding from you, I'm here doesn't mean there aren't relational difficulties with the Lord and we pray and long for him to do things and be at work and we want to see that work done and happen in certain ways that we want to. But his relationship with us is always there. Always steady. Always real. Eugene Peterson, I love, he said it this way. He's a theologian and thinker that wrote many um, books, including The Message. He said, the Christian life is a lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Hear that again. The Christian life is a lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. That is that we're living out what is true and real within. That who we really are in Christ actually matches what we do in this world. There's no hidden theory. And we see, and it's a throwaway line, actually. If you ask the question, okay, how does Paul come about 
into the hands of these Romans. It's not just in this conspiracy theory. This theory was foiled by one line in verse 16 that says this. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Almost seems like a throwaway line. And this is actually one of the only places that we see about Paul's family. One of the only places. We, we read a couple places about his parental lineage and some of what he came from, but this is one of the only places we see about his family at all. And it's almost as if Luke thinks we know more about it than we do. So as an interviewer and and someone, they would write things like this and people would come back and say, who told this? How do you know this? So how do we get this letter that's written to Claudius Lysias? Well, it, it, it comes through Paul's nephew. It comes through that. And and I think what's interesting is this. Again, it may be a throwaway line, but God is at work in Paul's family. One line pivots how the gospel continues going forward, and it's through Paul's family. And I love that Luke doesn't say his nephew went. He says, the son of his sister I just had, as I was reading commentaries and even my own questions in the commentaries and outside of that and just studying, thinking of this, it made me think, what did, Paul, what did Paul's family think of Paul and his change in his life? I mean, they knew his upbringing. His sister, they were probably part of a, a decently prominent family. And this is why the nephew, and this is the question, how did the nephew have access to this very sensitive material that he could also then take to high levels of Roman, you know, uh, Praetorian guard? How did he, how did he come ac- across this? Luke doesn't answer that for us. <laughs> what, he, what he wants us to see is that This was pivotal for us to understand. God is at work even in Paul's family. I wonder, when Paul was persecuting and destroying and actually even killing the church, even taking prisoners and and utilizing Roman law to throw them in jail, I wonder what his family thought of him then. And then all of a sudden, her brother, his uncle, switches on a dime. And instead of persecuting all those people, is now lifting them up. Is now one of them whom everybody is wanting to persecute. I wonder what that was like for them. You know, the New Testament is is replete about family and what that that dynamic does. Here's something interesting. You can read about Jesus' family too and their reactions to him. You got a lot more information of that and even in the little information we have of that than we do of even Paul's. But it is interesting how much this comes up. That the, the family comes up and that the Lord will use or even work against families to continue the movement of his gospel. That he is at work, not just in the conspiracy theories here, the conspiracy, but in the small little ways of Paul's nephew, his sister, 
And many of us in this room, again, it may be a throwaway line, but it is worth noting that many of us in this room may come from a family where it has been really hard to be a Christian. To actually say, I follow Jesus. And, and, and some of us in this room have grown up with an inherited type faith where we inherited it, we grew up in maybe a church type atmosphere. But the question is, do we really own it? Enough to where we know who do we really follow? Our family or do we follow Jesus? Because those things aren't always in line together. One of the easiest places we can hide and even idolize and move away from our relationship with God is in our families. And the way we can do that, just like anything else, is to try and give eternal significance to someone or something that can't hold it. How do we actually love our families? Even when we don't. Even if we're separated and estranged from them. Even if it's difficult. How do we love our children? How do we love our parents? When maybe (laughs) most of us in this room, maybe even in therapy for those kind of things. We can't do it if we put that significance in any sense in their hands. Eternal weight has to be held. I tell you what, if I try and put the eternal weight of the Lord on how I care about my, my boys, my sons, it will crush my relationship with them. If I do that with my wife, with Megan, what, what, what would that do? It would destroy that. It may be a throwaway line, but I think it's interesting that Luke notes How did this information go to them? There's a care that the gospel goes forward through this one pivotal moment that God is at work in Paul's nephew's life in one way or another. God is at work. And you know what? God is at work in an empire. What does the word gospel mean? Let's be reminded. The word gospel means good news, but you may have heard me say this or someone else say this. It's actually not, in our culture, we think of it as a religious term. It's actually not. It wasn't born out of a religious background. In fact, you can read in the Roman world at this time, the word gospel was used over and over, like sayings like the gospel according to Emperor Trajan or those kind of things where, where it was an, a pronouncement of good news that, that gave not something that you warranted your opinion towards but a fact of. You gave a reaction to. It could be a birth announcement. It could be a, a, a victory in a war. But here's what's important about that. Why would the Roman government from this letter and then even onward And it says in verse 23 and 25, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea the third hour of night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride for bring him safely for Felix the governor. Why would the Roman government, the Roman empire, the most 
powerful empire in the entire world give four times the amount of resources for one person? Why in the world? (laughs) It makes no sense. It makes no sense to protect this one. Why? Because you know what the empire valued? The empire valued its name. The empire valued its power. It wanted to flex its might. And guess what? Underneath all of that, a conspiracy to kill Paul turned by his nephew. And then how does the gospel start to reach the heart of the empire going to Rome through the most powerful empire in the world at that time? They start to carry Paul himself to Rome. God flips it on his head. How is God God at work? (laughs) He takes the strong arms of the Roman empire and says, you know what? I'm gonna have you carry the gospel all the way to Rome. How is God at work? Oh, he's not here, but he's at work. You may not see his name, but he is in it. (laughs) See, this letter that Luke includes is so, so fascinating. Because how, if you ask the question, how did Luke get this how did he get this? Claudius Lysias, his excellency to the governor of Felix. Like, how does, how does Luke get this stuff? <laughs> He's a historian, right? He does his fact checking. He looks. What we're reading isn't just some made up thing. Luke is giving us the actual historical accounts of a letter that was given, sent on, moved forward. But here's what's fascinating. It's through Paul being a prisoner that this would be carried all the way to Rome. If we ever think, (laughs) and here's the question we need to have, where do we put our value? What do we think the gospel needs in terms of its power? It works in in ways that we would never expect because God is always at work right now. When you leave, the use of power, I love this, this, this thought. Even as we think about it in our own government and thoughts, a voice and vote, a means, it, look, the use of power as a means to assert our own interests, or is it rather to love our neighbor as ourselves? Listen to this, especially our most vulnerable, overlooked, oppressed, marginalized neighbors, as Brian Loretz, who's a, a pastor that preaches regularly, I, I enjoy what he, he preaches often. He says, we can't be an a la carte on one thing, like pro-life stance for the Lord, if, because the Lord is for life womb to tomb. This has implications on our political engagement, what it means to live according to the truth that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but in such a way that we engage the world more, not less. In every facet, not just one. See, Paul valued his Roman citizenship because he knew the value that it drove his heavenly one. 
He used his earthly citizenship to uphold the value of his heavenly one so that he could continue in his purpose to carry the gospel forward. God is at work. (laughs) This table is nothing but proof that God is at work. Because before you came to this table, God prepared it. Long before I came to this table, God prepared it. This is Jesus' table. This isn't my table. This is his. This is his body and blood. And God is at work. Because when you come and take this table, the work that is being done isn't for you to come and say, I've done it, but that he, by faith, he actually feeds you. You take it in. And God is at work to transform you in ways you would never expect. And God is at work when you leave this table to live in congruence that what you taste here and what you consume here works outward through you in this world that you live in and out of your heavenly citizenship first before your earthly one. So you can make sense of your earthly one. So you can live in it. Because God is at work and guess what? He will never stop until he is finished. And he will come again and do, those, and do that. And we're gonna stand and read a creed together and we're gonna recite those words. But as, I, as we do, remember, God is working even now for those purposes. Let's stand together.